Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. friends welcome back to another episode of true crime and academia i'm your host mary de pippi i hope you all had a wonderful week this week i hope you are looking forward to an awesome weekend i'm quite busy this weekend which is so abnormal for me like i just have so many things going on like this weekend and next week like i'm I'm excited for two of those things. The rest of them, I'm kind of just ready for them to be over. Um, One of the things that I'm looking forward to is that I'm going to the Ren Fair with a couple of work friends. So I'm very excited about that. I have my costume ready to go. I am not, however, looking forward to waking up super early so that way (laughs) we can get there when it opens. Um... Just because the following day, I'm also not going to get any sleep. I have a sister date um, with my sister, obviously. So, you know, I mean, I'm glad, you know, that we're doing it. Obviously, I do not regret any of these activities. I just am just such a tired person. that I always look at the lack of sleep first. But, you know, it's going to be totally worth it. I'm excited. I meant to record earlier today and I apologize if you hear screaming children there are small children in the household that my parents are watching so I mean you shouldn't be able to hear them I'm hearing them but just in case I apologize but anyway uh, my boyfriend and I we went and saw a house today that was really exciting Um, we're definitely not buying that house but we're excited to just have you know gone through and you know, taking the next steps, you know, to see properties and things like that. So, you know, I think that's going to keep our motivation up. We definitely have a list of other houses we want to see. So, you know, we'll see how long it takes, you know, before we find the house. But, you know, I'm excited that we're going through this process. And, you know, hopefully we will get a new place soon. So I'm very excited about that. Not new. I shouldn't even say a new place. Our first place, <laughs> you know. So I'm excited about that. And yeah, 
I've also been watching What We Do in the Shadows. I just feast there. I just finished season one. I really liked it. I'm in season two, but unfortunately, given the circumstances for which I was watching it, I wasn't able to pay attention, so I have to go back and rewatch some episodes, but I'm still enjoying it so far. For those of you that don't know, it's basically Vampires meets The Office, and yeah, that's really all I have to say about that. It's um fairly dark comedy, so, you know. But it, like I said, it's very pretty lighthearted <laughs> and funny. But at the same time, you know, they're also vampires making jokes about killing people. So <laughs> you sometimes question your sense of humor. But it's a great show. Highly recommend. And yeah, that's really that's really about it of what's going on in my life right now. So let's get into this news update. This first story is literally the strangest celebrity crime story I have come across so far, I think. I'm also, like, weirded out by the celebrity it involves. Cher, the amazing, ageless singer who herself is probably a vampire. Because, like I said, she literally does not age. (laughs) She is being accused of hiring four men to kidnap her youngest son, Elijah Blue, Back last November 2022. Now, according to Elijah's wife and, you know, soon to be ex-wife, actually, her name is Marie King. She's claiming that four men burst into their hotel room while they were there basically trying to save their marriage. Now, some sources claim that this was around or on their anniversary. King came out recently alleging that the singer was responsible stating that one of the kidnappers even said to her that her mother-in-law was the one who hired them. I thought that was a little strange, but then uh, you never know. I I wasn't trying to think too much into it. Not because I'm trying to side with Cher in this. I think that it 100% happened. I just think the intentions are different, which I will get into in just a second. Now, Elijah sadly struggled with drugs, like, Almost his entire life, unfortunately. And at the time of the alleged kidnapping, he was supposedly receiving treatment. Why, though, that he was out at a hotel with his wife for their supposed anniversary? I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, But according to uh, court documents, there had been a postponement for a different date and it was supposed to like that date was supposed to coincide with the end of his treatment which would have been early this March so again not exactly sure what type of treatment he was receiving or what type of facility he was in again you know generally most rehab facilities they don't let you go anywhere but maybe this was different I don't know But anyway, it seems that he was out at some point during his treatment. Anyhow, King claims that her husband was taken to a facility, I guess a different one, and didn't have any phone access. So basically she's saying that he was taken away to a facility and she couldn't get in touch with him. Now some people believe that if Cher did this, She did this because she was trying to get her son out of a toxic relationship or, at the very least, away from Marie King. Honestly, 
if this is true and Cher did hire these men to kidnap her son, obviously that is not acceptable. And even though I can understand a parent wanting to help, I guess, save their children, I feel like that's what she was feeling or thinking that she was doing. You know, you want to do that, but at the same time, when your child's an adult, I feel like you kind of just have to... It sounds so harsh, but I feel like you have to let them do what it is that they want to or are going to do anyway and to just kind of be there to pick up the pieces. Now, I'm not sure. It seemed like I said Elijah's drug issues came from earlier on. It seemed like they were happening before he met and married Marie King. However, I'm not sure if maybe she was a catalyst for his condition uh, or you know she maybe was a facilitator or an enabler I should say of his drug use I really don't know but you know it's also possible that Cher just didn't like her and was just like this enough is enough my son just needs to divorce you and get clean and call it a day Either way, the, I mean, if that is the case, the latter, you know, that's clearly, like I said, not okay. He's an adult. He should be able to handle his his affairs as he sees fit. But, you know, we will see what happens. As of this moment, Cher has not come out and responded to these accusations. But, you know, maybe she will. We will find out. Hopefully, an almost 40-year-old cold case is about to be solved. It seems that recently there was finally a suspect arrested and put into custody. In February of 1987, a 6-year-old boy named Jeremy Stoner went missing from his grandparents' home in Vallejo, California. His body was discovered four days later on Sherman Island, and it was determined that he had been sexually assaulted and strangled. 69-year-old Fred Kane III was arrested at his home in Oregon on September 18, 2023. DNA evidence linked him to the horrific crimes. Kane had been a suspect earlier on, but they believed that the crime was committed by a different suspect. The case for this other suspect did go to trial twice, but in both instances, the juries were never able to reach a verdict. And before they even could the second time, the suspect passed away. Now, this is not the first of criminal offenses against Kane, the person who is now a very credible suspect. His rap sheet includes charges of burglary, sodomy, and rape by threat, which is simply threatening someone with rape. Now, Kane was recently in court but he is due back in sometime in October. I couldn't find an exact date, but it says that he is due for another hearing in October. It said that Kane is also suspected of the fatal stabbing of a nine-year-old boy named Eric Coy. Just so happens that this was also the same year that Jeremy was murdered and assaulted. Hopefully, you know, it seems like this DNA test was strong so hopefully it will hold up in court when this eventually goes to trial 
And, you know, hopefully that, you know, these families find some justice after all of these years. I can't imagine having gone so long (laughs) not knowing, but at least there is some sort of, or at least hopefully there will be some sort of end for them. This next story got me by the title, I have to admit. It did not go where I expected, but I still want to talk about it because It just feels like there's still a problem that's going on with this. So over the past month, about 50 children have gone missing from the Cleveland, Arcon, Ohio area. And those are just some of the more than 1,000 children that have gone missing from that area this year. Which at first I was like, holy shit, that's a high number that seems extremely suspect. Like there has to be some sort of like sexual like child sex ring going on like it just seemed so drastic and so crazy to me but according to the Cleveland police they're saying that these numbers are misleading because some of these or actually the majority of these cases are considered to be habitual runaways and they're claiming that out of all of those cases from this month Only 14 of them are considered to be endangered, which, you know, in some ways, I guess it makes you feel better. But also, I my brain just went to like, well, what the fuck? Why are all of these children running away? And from some of the information that I saw in the research that I did for this case, it seemed like a lot of these children are in the system. But also, again, like, that shouldn't be the main reason why this is happening. Like, (laughs) there has to, to me, there is something else going on. I'm not saying it's, like, some conspiracy or anything. But, like, there is a reason that children from the foster system seemingly, allegedly, en masse are running away from home. So, what is going on (laughs) with the foster system allegedly, where these children are being placed in homes that they're consistently running away from. I'm not saying that in all of those cases they are, you know, abusive situations. Some of them just may be strict, and these children might be fear of the level of control that the parents or foster parents are trying to exercise over them, even though it might be a safe level you know, the the type of level that is, you know, more protective than just controlling, you know. Um, but, you know, for the others, like, I don't know. Like, what is going on? Like, what, who are these people that you're placing them with that they have the need to run away? You know? So, why is no one investigating that? That's what I want to know. Lastly, for the news update, we have a case update. If you go back in the episodes to episodes 24 and 25, I covered the Stanford murders. Now, just to refresh for some of you, John Gatru, who worked as kind of like a custodian at Stanford University, was arrested for the murders and sexual assaults of Leslie Petroff and Janet Taylor, who was the daughter of Chuck Taylor, the legendary Stanford football coach. 
Now, John Catru was finally caught in 2018 and sentenced to life in prison. But last week, he died of natural causes. Which... This is why the death penalty is so fucking complicated. At least for me, anyway. Because on one hand... I I know that it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't change anything. And it's only causing more death. Right? But also, in cases like this, like, Leslie and Janet were in their early to mid-20s. And they didn't get to live out the rest of their natural lives because of this man, John Gatrew. And that's infuriating to think that he was given the luxury to die of natural causes. Which, like I said, in and of itself just is the conundrum that is <laughs> the death penalty. You know? Like I said, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't change anything. It's not going to bring anyone back. And I know that's a very harsh way of putting it. But... <sighs> It's, uh, you know, to quote Martin Luther King, you know, violence only begets more violence. The only way to drive out violence is with love. So, you know, like, I feel like it falls in with that. But, I mean, like I said, also, I'm conflicted because of situations like this. So, you know. All right. I have a really interesting case for you guys this week. So we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to get into this week's case. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And... The GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and, at times, scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. 
I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions and how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. <laughs> 
On September 18, 1952, 22-year-old Betty Shanks was headed home from a lecture that she attended at State Commercial High School. This night was normal by all means for Betty. After her lecture, she walked home and departed the tram on a stop near her home in Grange, Queensland, Australia. This was around 9.32 p.m. That would be the last time anyone would see her alive again. Betty Thompson Shanks was born on October 10, 1929, in Wilston, Queensland, Australia, to Mr. and Mrs. David Shanks. Now, I couldn't find much about her early life, like as far as her siblings and her home life, but it seems like she came from a loving and caring family, at least as far as her parents are concerned. Because, again, I have no idea if she has siblings. From what was said about her and from what we know about her, it seems that she was a very kind and smart person. She graduated from the University of Queensland and worked as a civil servant in the Department of Interior. Now, the Department of Interior in Australia existed from 1932 to 1972, and it was responsible for child welfare. So, basically, Betty worked in social services as a social worker, which, I mean, to me, that just seemed to be the most equivalent of what this job was based off of everything that I saw, which is a very admirable pursuit. You know, I don't know if the classes or the lectures that she was attending coincide with that career or if she was trying to transition into a new one. You know, all we know is that she was working basically, like I said, as a social worker, as a civil servant in the Department of Interior and still taking classes. But, you know, based off of the job itself, you know, clearly she's working with children in very difficult situations and like social work you know that's an extremely difficult job (laughs) not only just the paperwork or the amount of paperwork you know combined with the mental and physical aspect of it I mean you know I can't I can't even imagine that night on September 18th The tram had dropped Betty off at the Days Road Trams Terminus. And like I said, that was the last known sighting of her around 9.30. I tried to find out if someone like specifically saw her leaving there or, you know, what exactly was in the police report. But I couldn't find anything. I mean, it's from 1952. So it's hard to know if that was really even the case but in some ways I kind of feel like it is which we'll get into in just a second now this is one of the reasons why I think she had a more loving household because it was stated that her father David had waited up for her but by 1 30 in the morning he knew something was seriously wrong and phoned the police to report Betty missing Just before 6 a.m. on September 19th, so literally within hours of Mr. Shanks calling in Betty's disappearance, a neighbor went outside to grab the newspaper. 
when he noticed a young woman's body lying on the ground on another neighbor's lawn. He, of course, was, you know, thankfully very level-headed and went in and called the authorities. Now, the location of the body is sort of significant because she was found 500 feet from the terminus from where she was last seen. So, again, this proves that there was a very short window, sadly, you know, from the time that she got off from of the tram and was walking home to when she was attacked and murdered. According to some sources, Betty was found wearing her gold watch, which had been stopped at 9.53 p.m., which was 21 minutes after, like I said, she was last seen. A few of the neighbors also told authorities that they had heard screams around 10 p.m. that night, but most of them had pretty much assumed that it was due to some of the local teenagers just getting rowdy. Sadly, you know, again, if this timeline is to be believed, which all the evidence points to that it is, it was most likely Betty. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot 
H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. When police arrived, they noted Betty's gruesome condition. Now, for those of you who are, you know, triggered by certain things, you might want to skip this part. So this would be the time to do it, like, right now. Betty was found beaten badly, so much so that some of her teeth were scattered on the ground around her. Her face and other parts of her body had obvious boot marks on her, and they were in a black polish. It had been speculated by a lot of people that she was also kicked. Her bra straps had been broken and her underwear had been removed, but by some sort of miracle, she hadn't been sexually assaulted. However, though, we need to remember that this is the 50s, so there is the room for the possibility that they were wrong. Obviously, I hope they were not. Obviously, though, do I wish that she wasn't murdered at all in the first place, but, you know, given the fact that that is something I can't change that had happened, you know, I just hope that she wasn't further violated. Now, for any of you who needed to go away, you can come back now. You can rejoin. So bloody handprints were found on the fence nearby where Betty's body was found, but sadly, it never amounted to anything. Her family and friends stated that at the time, she didn't have any enemies and she hadn't dated anyone for a year. So to this day, Betty's murder remains unsolved. But there have been a few theories, which we're going to get into. The first theory is that a well-known doctor killed her. Three days after Betty's murder, a doctor named Donald Carter died by suicide and this sparked rumors of a potential connection and, like, murder-suicide situation. However, this theory was quickly dismissed because those who were close to Dr. Carter said that he had become devastated over the loss of a patient. He was going through some severe financial woes and just overall was overworked and it seemed like he was extremely depressed. And that was what led to his suicide. Not because he was bearing the weight of insurmountable guilt from taking the life of another human being. His DNA was provided via his son's samples, meaning they were able to get like a geological or genealogical, my bad, um, connection to figure that out. Um, So that eliminated him ultimately as a suspect. Another theory was that Betty was targeted for money. It was said that Betty had entered the Golden Casket Lottery and had won at the time what was 3,000 Australian pounds. In today's money, that is roughly $250,000. So, not just any small chunk of change. Like, (laughs) that could literally, honestly, that could, how sad is this? This could literally pay that amount of money could literally pay off all of my debt 
And then I'd have maybe a little bit left over for myself. Like, that's all. I would just need a small loan of $250,000 that I don't have to pay back, essentially. I mean, not entirely, but, like, that money could do, do some things for me and then some is what I'm getting at here. Now, it was said that coworkers observed Betty visibly distressed after getting off of a phone call that day. And a well-known book on this case called I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks by Ted Does. D-U-H-S. Does is the only way I can think how to pronounce that. But anyway, he wrote this book and he said that he was a taxi driver at the time of Betty's murder. And he came forward claiming that he picked up a man around a mile from the crime scene around like 12 or not 12, 1040 p.m. And the guy that he picked up wore a shirt that had blood on it. And a lot of people believe that this man was essentially the person who they think killed her for this money. Now, this man was identified. His name was never given. He was never identified to the public. But he did come forward and was questioned by police. But it seemed like there wasn't enough evidence against him to pursue anything. So, again, a dead end. This last theory comes from a woman named Deshay Brittles. I think that's how you pronounce her first name. I'm not sure. But anyway, she is claiming that her ex-soldier turned locksmith father was Betty Shank's murderer. She said that she had witnessed her father burning clothes the night that Betty was murdered. Now, she went to authorities but was never taken seriously. And she claims that her father physically and sexually abused her as a child and remembers him specifically telling her to clean a pair of his leather boots from, again, the night that Betty was murdered, that were stained with blood and tissue. She said that her father also said to her not to say anything, quote, or you'll end up like Betty Shanks, end quote. At the time of Shanks' death, Brittles was about eight years old. I'm not sure exactly not sure exactly, excuse me, when she went to talk to the police about her father and everything, but when she did, they told her that she shouldn't say those things because they were friends with her father. Like, he worked in tandem with the police whenever they needed to get in somewhere. Now, it was also stated that a psychiatric report stated that Mr. Brittles quote, had the potential to be psychotic, end quote, which a lot of people feel would explain the violent nature of Betty's death. However, Mr. Brittles died before the claims from Deshaies even came to light. I think personally, if the because again, she worked in child welfare slash child services. I feel like if maybe Deshay and her father were a case of hers, then we could find motive for this. But I don't know how well all of these things were documented at the time, just because they had such limited 
technology, you know? So, again, it is very, I feel like this theory is the most plausible, given all of the information about Betty that we have to begin with. Um, You know, it would also explain the violence um, and potentially the lack of maybe sexual violence. I hate to admit, but sometimes I like to get into the minds of these people, and I just feel like if he, Mr. Biddles, Brittles, was the one committing this crime, I feel like, and again, this is only if she was, like, the social worker on the case and was basically probably essentially threatening. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just said the same word, like, in three different ways. But, ba- but that, you know, she was threatening or could have been threatening with taking the child away, which then he wouldn't have someone to physically and sexually abuse. And it could also be possible that she wasn't sexually assaulted, but that that could have been a fear tactic, if you will, um, because she's... I feel so disgusting saying this, but, like, that she's too old for him. Yeah. It, like I said, I feel so gross right now. I need to take a shower. But, like, that's the only way that I feel like this works. And, like I said, it this theory just seems the most plausible to me. But, sadly, I don't think poor Betty Shanks is going to get justice. <sighs> I mean, I hate that. I mean, I would hope, you know, like with the other cases from the Stanford murders, like, I would hope that maybe they could do some work with DNA and hopefully try to close it, but, (sighs) you know, who knows. But, you know, unfortunately, like I said, poor Betty, her case was never solved. But, you know, it doesn't mean that her life mattered any less or that her case matters any less. So that is all I have for you this week, my loves. I hope you all enjoy your weekend. Don't forget to follow True Crime in Academia on social media at True Crime in Academia on Instagram and TikTok and at TC in Academia on X slash Twitter. Also, if you would like to join the True Crime in Academia book club or listen to this or any other of the episodes ad free and get access to the bonus episodes, Go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber today. And until next time, my loves, I will see you all later. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get 
access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you wanna expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you wanna just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.